There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Have you ever heard of the Black Plague? It was actually one of the worst pandemics to ever hit the human race. They say around 60% of the population of Europe was wiped out in just a few years. Can you imagine the darkness that covered that region of the world, the grief that was in every city, in every family affected by that disease? It's just mind-boggling to me to think about it. And yet, there is an even greater plague that has infected the entire human race. And I call it the spiritual black plague of sin. You could also call this episode, Sin, the Cause, the Curse, and the Cure. Why have I chosen to focus on this? Because you hardly ever hear teachings on sin now. It's an unpopular subject. And Bible believers will promote the idea that humanity's problem is sin and that sin causes separation from God and that repentance and faith toward God are necessary steps to bring forth the cure. However, when I was a New Ager, I had a completely different mindset because the New Age claims that sin does not exist and that our real need is not the cure for sin and the idea of somehow repairing the separation from God that results from it, but rather our problem is ignorance of the fact that we have a sense of separation, not actual separation from God, but a sense of separation from God. And therefore, mankind's problem is ignorance, ignorance of the fact that we are already one with God. We just have to discover that and then celebrate it, confess it, and declare it. And of course, the next step that most New Agers take is not only to declare that we already are one with God, but that we are God, which I believe is the antithesis of the truth, the absolute opposite of reality. But let's go into this teaching. Let me lay the foundation by quoting Shirley MacLaine, who many years ago was quite a leader and an influencer in the arena of New Age spirituality. And she said this, until mankind realizes that there is in truth no good and there is in truth no evil, there will be no peace. Where does she get an idea like that? It comes from the concept of pantheism that the universe is an emanation of God and so Everything has its source in God, and all these material things and all the confusion and chaos in the world is really just a delusion. And we're learning lessons in the midst of all of this, but there's really no good and no evil because it all came out from God to begin with. Let me 
read a quote from the writer of A Course in Miracles, Helen Shukman, another very famous New Age influencer. And uh, actually, it's in my book, In Search of the True Light. If you don't have this book, you need to get it because it covers just about every area of information concerning the contrast between biblical insights versus New Age spirituality, Hinduism, Buddhism, and all the other Far Eastern religions. But listen to what Helen Shukman said. A sense of separation from God is the only lack you really need to correct. The sense of separation from God is the only lack you really need to correct. Let that sink in. This sense of separation never would have arisen if you had not distorted your perception of truth and had thus perceived yourself as lacking. But see, the Bible does not teach that we have this deluded state of mind that you could describe as a sense of separation from our source. It actually describes a separation from our source. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. It didn't say you had a sense of separation, but an actual separation. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, why did I tie this in with the Black Plague? There's a very definite reason why I'm using this as an analogy. But first, let me mention a nursery rhyme that probably you've sung many times as a child or as an adult singing to a child, and you didn't realize its roots go all the way back to the Black Plague. Do you remember that nursery rhyme, ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, and then everybody collapses to the ground? Well, originally, it was not we all fall down. It was we all fall dead because it was a description of how they were trying to combat this disease called the Black Plague. It affected the lungs terribly, and so they thought that initially if they would lead people around a rose garden or a uh, a posy garden or a flower garden, that it would help relieve it, ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. They'd even put the petals of posies and other flowers in the pockets of those that were suffering in the hope that they would breathe that fragrance and it would somehow cure them. Bring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes. Where do ashes come in? In the latter stages of the development of this disease, they would even hold spoons full of ashes to the nose of the people that were infected to create sneezes so that they would sneeze it out of their lungs but they were still falling dead. And it took them a long time to figure out what the real problem was. They blamed lepers. They blamed the Jews and persecuted them, thinking it came because of them. 
But the real problem was hidden deep in the sewer systems of the cities, where diseased rats were sloshing around in pools of human filth, and the infected fleas that lived on the rats were, of course, getting to the surface and biting the people and transferring the disease. So it transferred. It transferred from the rats to the fleas to the humans. But it began with the rats, from fleas to humans. Think of that. That's exactly how sin has taken its journey. There's been a transfer from one source to the next. It began with Satan in the very beginning. And let me read a passage of Scripture that describes that once glorious angel, and some say he was most likely an archangel, and uh, we do know that he's referred to as a cherubim. Listen to this, or one of the cherubim. Son of man, this is Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19. Now I'll only pull out a few. But Ezekiel said, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him. Now, this was a prophecy directed to the king of a city called Tyre. Jesus referred to that city. But it wasn't really to the king of the city, but to the ruling power, spiritual principality that influenced the king of that city and thus saturated that region under his dominion with satanic control and satanic influence. And so the real king of Tyre was not a man, but the satanic power controlling him. And you'll see that the things that were said could have never been descriptive of the man, but of Satan himself who was influencing the man. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, of course, the king of Tyre wasn't there, but Satan was. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And that's where you get the idea that he was of a high order of angelic being. He was a cherub. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. There are seven lamps of fire before the throne of God. And that's a reference to that. Now, here's the key verse, verse 15. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Because he had a free will. All angels, all cherubim, all seraphim, all human beings are created with a free will. Otherwise, love for God and worship toward God would be robotic. It would be planned and programmed in you and would not be sincere. So in order for love to be real, there has to be an availability of free will to those who love God. That's the only way it works. 
But somehow evil made its way into the heart of this one who has been referred to as Satan later on in Scripture. He was the anointed cherub that covered. That probably means he covered the throne of God. And the music of his uh, timbrels and pipes was in him in the day that he was created. So apparently he led the musical worship of heaven. And these are assumptions that may or may not be true. But then in verse 17, it says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom for sake of your splendor. And so the root sin that corrupted the universe, the very beginning source of sin, was the sin of pride. And I contend that there's much pride in New Age spirituality. Because the epitome of pride is claiming, I am God, you are God, which was actually the enemy's desire in the beginning. In also another passage of scripture, Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 14, verses 12 through 19, it describes his beginning once again, and it says, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you brought down? who deceived the nations, you said in your heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. And God said, no, you'll be thrust down to hell. And so pride, arrogance in claiming a position and a a character, a title, a nature uh, that was not his caused the downfall of Satan and the angels that followed him. And there were a multitude of angels that followed him who all became demonic forces influencing the human race. So that's one source of sin. What's the other source of sin? We read about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as one man sinned, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Romans 5.12. And so, through Satan, sin entered into the world because he tempted Adam and Eve and he seduced them into coming under his authority. And so, just like the rats to the fleas to the humans, now it passes from Satan to Adam and Eve to us. Because through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Because God had warned Adam and Eve, in the day you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And they died spiritually and soulishly and began dying physically. And of course, both of them passed away before a thousand years was up. And and the Bible said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. That's one explanation for it. That's what we call original sin. Original sin is the Christian doctrine that holds that human beings, through the fact of their birth, inherit a tainted nature and are in need of regeneration. The word regeneration means to be generated again, to be created anew. And we become a new creation. God puts a new spirit in us that's from without. It's not something awakened from within. We've got to 
conquer this old nature that has such a proclivity towards sin. So we are sinners by virtue of our birth. We find that also in Psalm 51, verse 5. Listen now. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Really? You mean sin passed from the mother to the child like the blood in the placenta carrying nourishment from the mother's stomach to the child being developed in the womb? Imagine that, that not only is there a physical transfer, but a soulish transfer. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery how that happens, how this sin nature is transferred from a father and a mother who uh, cause a child to be created through the seed of the man and the egg of the woman united, and that fertilized egg produces a human being. I tend to believe, and I can't prove this, this is just a personal belief, that because man is triune in nature, we are made up of spirit, soul, and body. The spirit comes from God. But the soul is the combination of the union of the man and the woman's soul. I believe that's why quite often children have emotional traits and mental traits similar to the parents that brought them forth. Sometimes even when those children are separated from their parents, when they're united years later, they have similarities in their emotional way of responding to life and the things they embrace intellectually because there's a soulish transfer of traits. I'm sure you've seen that yourself. Well, if that be true, then Adam and Eve had this trait of being in a fallen state and the death-dealing effects of sin had penetrated them mentally and emotionally. Their status was now sinners. And so they passed on that status of being sinners to their offspring. Now, I know that sounds dark and depressing. And a, a lot of times, New Agers are trying to find an approach to life and an understanding of the mystery of life by approaching it on what they think is a much more positive level and trying to approach our need as being that of being awakened spiritually instead of dealing with this root cause called sin. And yet, just because you gloss over the language and try to approach it from a positive direction doesn't mean you can change the cure for the disease. Because disease is not only physical. Disease is spiritual. The psalmist also said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, who heals all thy diseases. The word disease means dis-ease. Anything that takes your ease, your comfort, your peace from you. And the soul has a disease called sin that can only be cured one way. There's only one cure for it. And everything else just glosses over the problem and doesn't really help. Now, there's two things I want you to know right here at the beginning. Number one, sin is God's enemy, not sinners. Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. He ate with the drunks and the prostitutes and the 
people that were scorned by the prideful religious authorities in that day. He mingled among them to show them there's a better way to live. And when he would extend compassion and mercy to someone, he didn't just tell them to continue in that lifestyle. The woman that was about to be stoned because she was caught in the act of adultery heard him say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And I believe when he spoke that into her life, it spoke character into her that enabled her to overcome her sinful past. And when he comes into your life, he will produce character in you that will enable you to overcome a sinful past. And the second thing I want you to know right here at the beginning is that when we see the horror of what sin is, we also simultaneously see the wonder of what was accomplished at the cross. Simultaneously, you're horrified and filled with wonder because there's an awful problem, but there's an awesome answer. And that answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, I think it's very important for you to see that often the things that become sin don't start as sin. Ponder that for just a moment. The things that become sin don't start as sin. Let me compare it to this. For instance, there's beneficial aspects of nature that start out good but become bad. They start out beneficial but become destructive. For instance, rain is a wonderful and beneficial thing that produces all the greenery, the trees, the flowers, the vegetables, the fruits. We need rain to live, but when it's taken to excess, it becomes torrential floods that can destroy and kill. And so it's something good taken to an extreme. Sunshine is a wonderful thing. It causes the process of photosynthesis. And nothing can live without sunshine. That's why you should get at least 20 minutes of direct sunlight every day to achieve optimum health. But taken to an extreme, it creates drought where nothing can live because all the moisture is evaporated. See, something good and beneficial becomes something destructive and death-dealing. And what about wind? Wind is a very refreshing thing. There's nothing that I think is more refreshing than a cool wind blowing in your face on a warm day. And yet wind, when it's taken to an extreme, becomes tornadoes and hurricanes, something very destructive. So can you see how something good as it develops and intensifies and goes to an extreme becomes something not so good? And it's the same way with sin. And let me give you three examples. A very basic need of life is sustenance, nourishment, food. And it's a good thing to have food to eat, but when you carry it to an extreme, it becomes sin. It becomes gluttony. Or what about sleeping? It's necessary to sleep. Different people have to have different amounts of sleep. I do very well with about five or six hours. That's all I get. Usually others need eight hours. Some need more than that. And that's a good thing. It it causes a regeneration to take place in your body. When you're asleep, your body is repairing itself. 
But when you carry it to an extreme, it becomes a sin, laziness, slothfulness. Well, what about sexual fulfillment? God created that desire for a man and a woman to be one in marriage and within the confines of God's rules. It's a beautiful and fulfilling thing. But when you carry it to an extreme, it becomes perversity. It becomes licentiousness. It becomes evil in the sight of God and can cut a person off from the things of life that are good and the things of God that are good. And so it starts out being good, but it becomes destructive when carried to an extreme. And that's why I like this quote. And I I have a quote book. In fact, I have a bunch of quote books here that I often refer to because sometimes you can say something in black and white and it's just a plain statement where someone else may say it in full color and it just captures your attention. And uh, a guy named Roswell Dwight Hitchcock said this. I have no idea who he was, but he had wisdom. He said, what is human sin but the abuse of human appetites, of human passions, and of human faculties in themselves all innocent? Ponder that for just a moment. And there's a lot of other good quotes like Benjamin Franklin said here, sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it is hurtful. Nor is a duty beneficial because it is commanded. It is commanded because it is beneficial. And that really says a lot. Martin Luther, who of course had a very strong global impact to this day, and yet it's been 500 years since he shared his revelation of God. He said the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. That's why it's so important for me to do this episode of Revealing the True Light, because the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. And if you gloss it over and make it all about self. And incidentally, the word sin, at least in English, has at its center the word I, because it's all about everything revolving around you. Another quote by E. Paul Hovey is this, sin has four characteristics, self-sufficiency instead of faith, self-will instead of submission, self-seeking instead of benevolence, self-righteousness instead of humility, because the new age is all about the exalting of self. In fact, it stems from Hinduism that equates self, the individual soul, Atman, with the oversoul, Brahman. And so the whole key to enlightenment is realizing that yourself really is absolutely one with Brahman, the oversoul, ultimate reality. So self-realization is the goal. No, it's not the goal. Self-realization will give you a false view of yourself that will fall apart in the end. It's not true. It's not right. And it doesn't work. John Bunyan was the author of Pilgrim's Progress, which is a really powerful analogy. It's a beautiful book that really shows the journey that we're all on. And he said this, and this was a man who was incarcerated in prison for his commitment to Christian ideals. And he wrote that book in prison, by the way. Sin 
turns all God's grace into wantonness. It is the dare of his justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the flight of his power, and the contempt of his love. If I stopped right now, I've said enough. May I repeat that quote again? Sin turns all God's grace into wantonness. It is the dare of his justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the flight of his power, and the contempt of his love. When we, in a headstrong way, just continue in our sin and refuse to be remorseful and refuse to examine our heart to see what we need to repent of, we fulfill exactly what he described. Have you ever wondered when sin was first mentioned in the Bible? God spoke about it, and he warned Cain that it was about to happen in his life. The first murder that took place in this realm took place over a religious difference of opinion. No wonder there's been so many murders in the name of religion, and I don't see any of them as being justified. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, what was God talking about? It was when Cain was upset because God had witnessed in some supernatural way. We're not told how God indicated it, but God witnessed his approval of Abel's offering. Abel brought a sacrificial lamb to God. Cain brought the fruit of the ground, and God witnessed his approval of Abel's sacrifice. I believe if it followed the pattern that comes later in Scripture, God sent literal, visible fire from heaven to consume Abel's sacrifice. And that was the first time fallen man had truly reconnected with God. And it was all a picture of the Lamb of God to come who would deal with the sin problem in a much more important way because John the Baptist introduced him by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world potentially All the sin of the world has been taken care of. But Cain realized he wasn't received, he wasn't accepted, he wasn't approved, and his countenance was fallen, and he was very angry. And God asked him, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you did well, in other words, if you approach God the right way, you would have been accepted. But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. But that little statement, sin lies at the door, doesn't really paint the picture that God wanted painted or that the Bible was really expressing because it is really a word that depicts sin as a ravenous, devouring beast that is crouched just beyond the door. And if you crack the door a little bit, it will pounce on its victim and destroy that person. That's why the Amplified Version puts it this way. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin crouches at your door. Think of that. The first time sin is described, it's described as a ravenous beast 
that devours its victims. And it happened. It happened to Cain. He succumbed to its influence, and instead of being angry, anger drove him to commit the first murder. And thus he introduced that horrible sin into this world. But there is a cure. There is a cure. Let me end by saying the Hebrew word that is translated sin there is kata'a. And the Greek word that is translated sin that we'll be covering later on in a future episode is the word hamartia. And both of them mean missing the road or missing the mark. It's like an archer pulling back the string of a bow to shoot an arrow at a target. Well, the mark is the bullseye, and that represents total perfection in all your thoughts, total perfection in all your emotions, total perfection in all your actions, total perfection in all your reactions, body, soul, and spirit. You're perfect in every area. That's the mark. And anything short of that mark is sin. Anything short of that mark requires God's intervention. And I'm going to show you in the next episode how God will intervene for you supernaturally. Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. That means a defense attorney, one who will stand in the gap for you to prove your innocence. Well, none of us are innocent, but Jesus, through the price that he paid, wants to prove you're innocent. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction for the demands of justice because justice demands that because of sin, we all die. We die mentally, emotionally, physically, eternally. That's the price we pay for indulging in sin. But Jesus became the propitiation. He satisfied the demands of justice by tasting death for every person. And that's why when you receive him as Lord of your life, sin can be canceled, smitten out of existence, and cleansed from your soul. There's much, much more that needs to be said about this arch enemy of the human race and the cure, but I'm going to reserve it for the next episode of Revealing the True Light. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.